Welcome to the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of McMinnville podcast. Founded in 2007, UUFM is a gathering place for people who embrace a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We are located in the heart of Oregon's Willamette Valley wine country. Please visit us on the web at macuuf.org, M-A-C-U-U-F dot org. And if you are ever in or near the McMinnville area, don't hesitate to stop by and visit us. UUFM gathers in love and service for justice and peace. At this time, I'd like to welcome Reverend Kate McBride. Thank you. It is lovely to be here again with all of you. That that Dr. Ford got up and was so brave and spoke her truth and that, in my opinion, it's not being received with the respect it deserves. Politics aside, we all need to be able to speak our truth and know that we will be received with respect. So for all of us here, any of us who have had hard truths to speak or hard truths to hear, I want to acknowledge the courage that that takes on both sides. So I heard that today is bring a friend to church Sunday, which I think is a lovely idea. So welcome to people who are here visiting for the first time. I hope you come back. This is a great group of people. And thinking about people coming to a UU service for the first time, and I guess maybe the fact that it's fall and that it's kind of coming on to Thanksgiving and all of that sort of stuff, got me thinking about Unitarian Universalist history, history that happened here on our shores when people first started coming over from Europe. So today is going to be partly story and partly theological conversation, and I look forward to hearing what you all think afterward. I really enjoyed that conversation time last time. So just sort of as a prelude, some things to know to start with. And most of you probably know this stuff, but some of us, you know, maybe don't. So just to start, both Unitarians and Universalists started in Trinitarian Christianity, right? That means that before there were Unitarians or Universalists, people in major churches believed the Christian formulation of the Trinity. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This has been a very long, this conversation about Unitarianism and Universalism has been a very long conversation throughout the whole history of Christianity, and and it continues. I'm a chaplain, I visit elders in their homes, and often, I mean so often, I go in to see somebody who's listed as you know, one of the big major religions, Baptist maybe, and we get to talking 
and I discover that their theology is really universalist. They believe in universal salvation, that Jesus died for all of us, that we are all going to be okay in the end. That's not something traditional Christianity teaches, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. Or they're less commonly, but I also run into people who are Unitarian, people who believe that, okay, there's a God, there's some kind of big somebody, something out there, right? But, but that God, that God is out there, that God shows up in each one of us, in our hearts, and in the world, in all kinds of ways. But that Jesus, who the Trinitarians believe is a part of God, Jesus was one of us. And his story is even more, more impactful because he was one of us. So that's the Unitarian belief. God is one. Unity. The Universalist belief is about universal salvation. All of us are going to be okay in the end. So today I'm going to be focusing on the very beginnings of the Unitarian and Universalist story in America. So, and this story grabs me partly because, as I've researched my family, I discovered my 12 times great-grandfather, Nathaniel Tilden, was one of the first people who came to the U.S. from Europe. He came sort of in that decade right after the Mayflower. And his people, the people he came over with, were Calvinists. He brought his wife Lydia and their seven kids and their seven servants on the ship Hercules in 1634. And the people who traveled with them, their community was a Congregationalist, this is more sort of church history stuff, Congregationalist, which we are, means we have congregational polity. We don't have an authority outside of the people gathered in this room. Right? We, are, we choose to be a part of a bigger group because it satisfies some needs we have as an organization. But really, each group, each church in the Unitarian tradition is a congregation, has congregational polity. We make decisions here. So Nathaniel was the ruling elder in Situate, Massachusetts back in 1634. So that meant... You know, when I found him, I was really excited. I was like, hey, maybe this ministry thing comes through my genes somehow. (laughs) And when he died, in in his will, it talks about all the stuff he had. He had 45 books, which is a lot for a guy back then. And a lot of them were theology books, Calvinism and other stuff related to that. And Tilden's pastor was John Lothrop who preached the prevailing Puritan Calvinist theology. So Puritanism, we've heard that, right? Pilgrims and Puritans from the history books. Puritanism was intended to purify and simplify the faith taught by the Church of England, which they thought was too Catholic. It was too fancy and had too much ritual. And the real message was getting lost in all of that somehow. But those Puritans were loyal to the church. In fact, in the historical records, it shows where Tilden and a bunch of the folks that traveled with him had to take an oath before they were allowed to 
immigrate, emigrate, whichever the word is, before they were allowed to come here, but jump on that ship, the Hercules, they had to take an oath of allegiance to the church of England. So their intention was to do church a better way, but at least on some level, they were not intending to supplant the church. The church was not so thrilled about the things that they were trying to do, the changes they were trying to make, and actually arrested a bunch of them before they left, and maybe were pretty, was pretty glad to see them go. <laughs> and even now, we talk about Calvinism, and we think about John Calvin being this very rigid guy with really strict rules, right? And he was. But that innovation, the innovation that he brought, some of the stuff that he brought, we do still. We, as Unitarians, we think about him in relation to his battle with Michael Servetus, right? The guy that got burned at the stake for his Unitarian beliefs back, back in Europe. He was in a battle with John Calvin because Servetus said that Unitarianism, the belief that it's just God and that Jesus is not the same as God, which is different than what Calvin was saying, that that's more biblical. So they had the same sort of book they were drawing from, their authority was the same, but they had really different points of view. So we may recognize that Calvin name in relation to Michael Servetus. So Calvinism believed in original sin. They believed that even Adam sinned in the garden by eating the tree, eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and that we are all damned because of it. Men and women, children, babies as soon as they're born, we are all born fallen. Calvin's idea was that some of us, not everyone, just a few, were predestined, we were chosen before we were born to be saved. So those predestined people were the elect. And that Jesus' death saved some humans, but not everyone. Just those elect, just those few. Everybody else was going to hell. The trick was that nobody knew whether they were in that elect group or with the rest of us. So it was kind of a big mystery to everybody. And if you think about how all of us respond to a mystery like that, what do we do? Some of us say, well, to heck with it. <laughs> I'm not going to heaven anyway, so I'm going to do what I want. Others of us try to be perfect, right? We try to look like we're definitely the ones who are going to be going to heaven. And in my opinion, the community got a little confused. They started saying that people who were financially successful were probably among the elect. And people who were not financially successful were definitely among the damned. So people tried to be financially successful. They tried to work hard. They tried to live what they thought were sort of good, clean lives. Our Protestant work ethic, that some of us have a love-hate relationship with, right? The idea that you work hard to sort of justify your existence in the world. That comes out of the Calvinist ideas about trying to, you couldn't earn your way into heaven, but probably wanting to work hard was a sign that you were elect. 
So it's this very, I mean, to me, as I read about it and try to wrap my mind around it, this very kind of complicated trap for all of us. So eventually, my 12 times great grandparents' church, the first parish of Situate, became First Parish Unitarian Universalist Church after, you know, an intervening span of time. And that happened as the, as the people, one of the good things about Calvinism, one of the good things that they all came with was this idea that revelation continues to happen. That it's not just one person who has the truth and the truth is always stable and stagnant, but that through our communities especially, but even as individuals, we can really discern changes that need to happen. We, we don't know everything right now. We might learn more in the future. So that church, First Parish Situate, that became First Parish Unitarian Universalist, went through a process that a lot of New England churches went through, where that first minister, John Lothrop, was strict Calvinist, the second minister was Charles Chauncey, and he served until 1654 when he became the second president of Harvard University. So we can kind of see the intertwining starting to happen, right? Chauncey, there, was, there were big arguments in the church. I don't know if any of you have ever been involved in an argument in the church, but <laughs> there, I have. There were big arguments in the church every once in a while. One of the big arguments, the big argument of Chauncey's time was about baptism. Chauncey believed in immersion baptism, where you went fully into the water to get baptized. Other folks didn't agree with that. And so the church split. But Chauncey retained leadership of the build the church, the original congregation, I guess you could say. And then later, the Unitarian-Trinitarian schism happened, as happened in a lot of New England churches, right, where people became really convinced that Michael Servetus had been right. They didn't know about Michael Servetus back then. But they became convinced that by their honest and true reading of the Bible, God was one and Jesus was human. Jesus was like us. So we could have tons of conversations about just that idea, about how all of us feel about that, where we came to that belief. But for now, we'll just say that it was a radical idea at that time. And that it caused another split in the church. So the conflicts between that, that orthodox Trinitarian group and the liberal faction became so intense in the late 18th century that a third of the congregation left. This time, the people who left that church in Situate stayed really close by. They just moved around the corner and started the Trinitarian church. So they had the Unitarian church and the Trinitarian church by then. And the joke in the community at the time was that the Trinitarians kept the faith. The Unitarians kept the furniture. <laughs> so though their theology was difficult for me probably difficult for a lot of us 
The Puritans brought some good developments. Calvinism brought some good developments. One, we already touched on, congregational polity, that each church is independently governed and churches formed an association called the Standing Order, maybe not so different from our Unitarian Universalist Association. And in the Standing Order, ministers would exchange pulpits and people would even visit different churches when there started being this controversy about the Unitarian-Trinitarian split, the standing order sort of um, changed form, and people would only exchange pulpits with ministers, would only exchange pulpits with people who agreed with them. So it got a little bit more complicated. Another value that they brought that we still hold is that education is really important. Literacy in England at that time was about 30%, and the Puritans aimed for 100%. They established Harvard University in 1636, so people could read the Bible and laws, and because the Bible was the most important religious authority, they thought it was important for people to be able to read it for themselves, exercise their own reason and good judgment, and really understand what that text meant to them. Sermons were for teaching and inspiring. They believed in freedom of the pulpit, which we continue to have, which means that I can get up here and anyone can get up here and say what they believe. And it doesn't have to line up with the, any kind of orthodox belief of the church. They believed in spiritual independence, that each person was responsible for following the path to salvation or wholeness that made sense to them, and we continue that to this day. In fact, I mean, they would be pretty surprised, I think, to see where we've ended up with that idea. But I'm really, I don't know, kind of moved, I guess, to realize that that idea came from our very first foreparents who came to this country. Of course, men were the leaders and women were supposed to be submissive and show humility in relation to the men. That's changed a little bit, and I'm grateful. A precursor of our current OWL program, the, the Puritans, and this one kind of blew my mind, they believed that sexuality and marriage was a good thing, and that it was actually a gift from God, and both spouses were equally expected to fulfill responsibility to the other. In fact, one-sixth of divorce petitions in the Massachusetts colony were from women because their husbands didn't take care of their needs. And that was a reason to divorce somebody, which, again, kind of blew my mind. But, but it feels like a little bit of a precursor for us. So Chauncey and the other Congregationalist liberals held that the youth, use of reason was the best means for religious growth. And that's another, another tenant that we still have. So that evolved from the old Puritan idea of the exercise of conscience, especially church members' corporate discussions and decisions about issues of right and wrong. And it was bolstered by the new ideas in philosophy. So, so that's a little bit about the Unitarian past. 
I'm kind of curious, as I think about that whole trajectory, to think about how that impacted individuals, how people really lived into that. Because it called a lot, called for a lot from each individual to really engage in their faith and really engage in their community. So meanwhile, on the universalist side, John Murray is considered to be the person who brought universalism to the U.S. or to our, our soil. We weren't the U.S. yet. He would become America's first universalist preacher, but he started out as a passionately Methodist Calvinist preacher in Ireland. And as part of his duty as this passionate Calvinist Methodist preacher, he was sent to rescue a young woman who had fallen in with a bad theological crowd. They were universalists. And he had a long conversation with her. And it culminated in her asking him, if Jesus is not the savior of unbelievers, then isn't asking them to believe in him a lie? And if you were once a non-believer, did he never die for you until you believed? And this, these questions rocked Murray's world. The record says he was confounded and embarrassed into silence, and he left. And he wrote, from this period, I myself carefully avoided every universalist. Because <laughs> he was scared, right? He was scared for his soul that he was going to believe the wrong thing. But eventually, probably through conversation with his wife, he converted to universalism, and shortly after that, unfortunately, and things were going well for him, kind of until he converted. When he converted, he lost his standing in the church because he started preaching things that the church didn't agree with. And he, and when his wife and his kids got sick, he spent all their money trying to get them well, and so he ended up in debtor's prison, actually. And then his wife died, and his mom and his three sisters died, and he was really in a very dark place. He was depressed. He even considered suicide. And eventually he decided to go to America to leave behind his old life, including his religious life. He was trying to sort of commit social suicide, I think. I mean, sort of trying to get away from everyone who knew him and everything he knew, so he could sort of melt in. So in 1770, he boarded a ship to the New World. And meanwhile, Thomas Potter had been waiting. Thomas Potter was a farmer in New Jersey. And he had really thought and really considered and came to a universalist point of view himself, but didn't have any church to go to that taught those beliefs. So he built a little church on his farm, and he waited, and he waited, and he waited for about 10 years, until one day Murray's ship, the Hand in Hand, which was originally supposed to go to New York, but due to some miscalculation, ended up stranded on a sandbar off the coast of New Jersey. And Murray volunteered to go to shore to get fresh food for the people on board. 
And it was there that he ran into Thomas Potter. And these are words that are part of a part of a children's story about Thomas Potter that talks about ta speaks from his point of view. He could have said things like this. You see, I grew up here in these woods. I never had a chance to read or write, but I always liked hearing the Bible read. And I've thought a lot about religion. The trouble is, my ideas are different from the ideas of the preachers who travel through these parts. I built this little church myself for all the traveling preachers to use. I ask them questions and talk to them, but they don't know what to make of my ideas. I keep looking for a preacher of a very different stamp. I want a preacher who will teach about a loving God who saves people, all people, not just a chosen few. Today, when I saw your ship in the bay, a voice inside me seemed to say, there, Potter, in that ship, may be the preacher you have so long been expecting. Well, we can guess what Murray's response was. Uh-uh. <laughs> You've been waiting for me, but I have not been waiting for you. I am not preaching. Eventually, the two made a deal. If the ship would still be calmed on Sunday, still stuck there off the shore, that Murray would preach. And it was. <laughs> so he did. So Murray, who had hoped to disappear into the new world, was soon persuaded he had a message to deliver and began preaching to eager audiences at churches in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, and Massachusetts. Murray's message is crystallized into a few famous words. Give them hell, not hell, but hope. I said it wrong the first time. <laughs> Give them not hell, but hope. Which was a radical departure from the Calvinism of the time. Give them hope that we can all be saved. So what's good about that part of the story? The first thing I think about is Potter's faithfulness. He knew what was right for him. Trusted that if he built it, someone would come. I also am really moved by the realness of Murray's journey, the fact that he really struggled not to believe what he knew was right, what he in his heart was being called to believe, because it would have huge consequences for him and for his family. He really tried to toe the line, but ultimately wasn't able to, and really suffered as a result. Had really dark times, in fact. He lost everything he wanted to give up, but somehow he stumbled forward anyway. I bet some of us at least have felt like that before. Until he was literally becalmed in the ocean and found his way back to his faith. That's a pretty dramatic way to find your way back, to actually have your ship stuck on a sandbar till you agree to do what you're called to do. So in the end, Murray landed ended up ministering at uh, Gloucester, Massachusetts, starting in 1774, and he was there for about 20 years. Initially, his universalist views sparked controversy, but the church people, this had to warm his heart, the church people stood with him and actually sued to keep the church tax that would have been turned over to the government 
choose to keep sued to keep the church tax and litigated for years to keep that money to support their own congregation. And they won eventually. He married Judith Sargent, and Judith Sargent Murray was one of the original signers of the Universalist Charter. I have it with me, I'm not going to read it to you, but if you want to take a look at it later, it's pretty interesting. And an early proponent of women's rights. She wrote on the equality of the sexes in 1779. John and Judith moved on from Gloucester and founded a Universalist congregation in Boston in 1793. So he got to have his career as a minister preaching the faith that felt right to him, universalism. So today, Unitarian and Universalist congregations formally joined in 1961 to be the Unitarian Universalist Association. And like the Puritans, our foreparents from all those many years ago, we Universalists still have congregational, Unitarian Universalists still have congregational polity. We continue to be in conversation with our Christian roots and also have incorporated many other sources of wisdom. And we've been led there by some of those original principles, those original principles of intellectual inquiry, inquiry and really finding what spoke to our hearts. Our trust in the basic human ability to feel and reason underscores our belief and our practice together. And I like it when I can feel those echoes from way in the past to now. So before the time of my relative, Nathaniel Tilden, before he came to the US, a group came to the US, well, wasn't the US yet, but came to our shores in 1620 on the Mayflower. And some of those were the original, they called them pilgrims, but their religion was Puritan. They were pilgrims in the sense that they were seeking, they were religious seekers, like many of us are. So they were seeking a place to practice their Calvinist religion at the time, and they had gone from England, where they were uh, sort of run out of town, to the Netherlands, and politics in the Netherlands were changing, so they ended up coming back to England and then back to America. But as they were leaving the Netherlands, their minister, Reverend John Robinson, spoke some words to them that I want to leave you with. And if God language isn't your thing, kind of translate in your head. But listen for the movement of... Um, the call that he's making to them. I charge you before God and his blessed angels that you follow me no further than you have seen me follow Christ. If God reveal anything to you by any other instrument of his, be ready to receive it. As you were to receive any truth from my ministry. For I am verily persuaded the Lord hath more truth and light yet to break forth from his holy word. The Lutherans, who cannot be drawn to go beyond what Luther saw, whatever part of his will our God revealed to Calvin, they, the Lutherans, would rather die than embrace it. And the Calvinists, you see, stick fast where they were left by that great man of God, who yet saw not all things, 
This is a misery to be much lamented. For though they were precious shining stars in their time, yet God had not revealed God's whole will to them. And were they now living, they would be as ready and willing to embrace further light as that they have received. So as we face the challenges of our time, nearly 400 years later, our religious language is different, but our journey is the same. May we feel our connection to our heritage, to those pilgrims of the past, and move forward, informed by the new wisdom that is revealed in our lives, in our midst, every day. Blessed be and amen.